0: moved back to Chicago in 94, and I said, you know, if this stuff, if the CME hasn't completely transitioned to the screen by the year 2000, this place is going to be out of business. And, and I just couldn't have been more wrong. Um, I, I couldn't have been more wrong about the timing. It took far longer than that. Um, I think these transitions always do.
1: Thank you guys for joining in for another episode of the Thousand X Podcast. We welcome you back. And this time we have a very special guest who has not done a lot of podcasting before. uh, And we are very lucky to have him on this time. Actually, is the jefe of Jonah, my partner in crime on this podcast. We have uh, Don Wilson, uh, the founder of uh, DRW, joining us. And I'll let Jonah, who knows him, much better than I do courtesy of working together give the intro
2: thanks avi and and thanks Don for for joining us I'm sure we've got a lot of really interesting interesting content to put out today um, here Don uh, graduated from the University of Chicago and went straight into trading uh, you know right into the the pit in Chicago and in 1992 founded drW which is a global trading firm uh, which which Touches pretty much every every asset class, uh, both prop trading and and you know liquidity provision. So pretty exciting company uh, at the intersection of trading and technology. So, Don, thank you very much for joining us. Without further ado, can you tell us what it was that drew you to trading straight out of college? How you just knew that you wanted to uh, to make that your career? The foundational stuff.
0: Yeah. So so when I when I came to college, I. Um had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew that I was good at math and I knew that I liked using math to solve problems. And my initial inclination was, you know, maybe I'd do something in science. And, um, as I kind of experienced college and the academic setting a little bit, I was a little bit concerned about, um, about the very slow feedback loop that ha- happens in academia. And um, I actually, I, I raced sailboats in high school and in college. And um, one of the guys that I raced with was working on his post in uh, in physics. Um, he actually went on to, to fly the space shuttle. But at the time, he... Um, in addition to working on his postdoc, he, would, he was fiddling around with uh, FX modeling. And I was like, you know, that's really cool. Like you get this immediate feedback loop and you don't have to like write a paper about it and present it and kind of not really know if you're right or wrong. Um, you just figure something out and then go see if it works and, and you find out right away. Uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. and so that's when I decided that I wanted to go into trading and obviously being in Chicago, the trading pits were right there. what
1: what was it like uh, when you first when you first stepped into the uh, stepped into the pit? I mean what what's actually the process that you went through of getting up to speed and, and figuring out how to trade? I mean I can imagine that you walk in there and it's hectic and it's crazy I mean how'd you, how'd you figure it all out? what, what'd you, what did you start with?
0: Yeah. So, so it was, um, so what I did was, uh, and, and, you know, I graduated early, so I graduated when I was 20. Um, and, and I was, um, an extreme introvert, had a real hard time interacting with people. And, uh, but I got a job with a small trading firm called Letco and they said, okay, um, you're going to, we'll have you spend a couple weeks standing next to different traders that work for us. And then after six months, they said, okay, uh, here's a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Good luck. And I uh, became a member of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, leased a seat and decided to go in the Eurodollar option pit, which is uh three month LIBOR options. And you know, at that point you walk into the pit, the pit opens at seven twenty in the morning. It's open from seven twenty to two and, um, you, you know, find a spot to stand. And, uh, um, it's pretty intimidating because there's, I mean, it's super crowded, a bunch of people pushing and shoving, yelling and screaming. It looks like total chaos. Um, but the reality of it is, is it's just math. Um, and so I'd stand in the pit during the day and then go home and, uh, write code, build option pricing models, write risk software, um, fiddle around with different volatility, you know, kind of try to model volatility surfaces and, um, and then go back the next day and, and, uh, see if any of it worked. Um, and, and after uh, you know, after a little while, um, I, I started to figure some things out and, um, you know, the, the whole, my whole, uh, mindset was how do I, how do I define the fair value of every single option on the, you know, across the whole surface? And, um, and then, how do I then use that framework to and the order flow coming into the pit to pick up small amounts of positive expected value? Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's how it all started. So Don, what's
2: an example of something that you went home and coded and brought back into the pit the next day that just kind of worked?
0: Yeah, so so you know, there were a few um, a few iterations that were helpful. Uh, I mean, first of all, it, you know, I had some stuff that was, I think, not all that innovative, but, but, you know, I designed my own, my own sheets with all my own option values on them. I actually used an image writer too, to print them. So they took hours to print. I lived in a studio apartment, so I had to put like a pillow on top of the printer when I went to bed. Um, not sure all that stuff was that, you know, was that amazing, but it was nice to just be able to configure everything. Have calls and puts in different colors and and you know some kind of little incremental things and then you know the risk the risk views that I developed were were really pretty good um, all the different scenarios and uh, and those formats were certainly much better than the just kind of off the shelf uh, vendor things that you could buy um, the you know I think some of the places where I started to pick up valuation edges though were when I started to think about kind of how the vol surface evolves in the fixed income space, um, there was, um, you know, a, a couple I don't know, not long after I started, they listed, um, serial options. So, uh, short dated options on longer futures. And in this case, you know, it was like, um, you know, Uh, July and August options on September futures. So you'd have July, uh, August, September. And in the fixed income space, generally, the front of the curve is less volatile than further out. Um, You know, at the time, typically, it was the first red future. So the future that's just over a year out, that was the most volatile. Lately, of course, it's been further out the curve. Um, Well, certainly in the period of low rates it was much further out of the curve and then more recently it's 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 moved towards the front of the curve that peak of peak volatility that area of peak volatility evolves depending on the fed regime but but generally pretty almost always the front of the curve is less volatile because of course the fed controls the overnight rate and um and so that's relatively static and unless the fed changes it and so there was this persistent volatility roll down um, where, you know, the front month was less volatile than the second month, was less volatile than the third month, was less volatile than the fourth month. And so the, so when they listed these serial options, the July and August, the natural assumption was, well, obviously, you know, if June volatility is is, you know, 20 and September volatility is 30, then obviously... July and August have to be kind of in between. Um, but that's completely wrong because of course, July is alive when the September futures are more volatile than that forward period after July expires. And so, um, you know, if you just think about those volatility forwards, obviously, uh, July should trade at a much higher volatility than September and August should trade somewhere in between, uh, the July and September, but certainly, know well above september as well and so so that was kind of a a early realization that i had in in modeling the stuff and the market did not understand it that way at all um and that was definitely the kind of thing that gave me an edge because you know i had a very clear idea of what the fair value of these things were the market had a very different idea they're pretty low variance trades and uh um so you know i traded a lot of those types of things
1: and your your trading style must have had to evolve uh you know over over time especially as we transitioned over from you know pit trading uh to electronic trading and that transition was not managed well by a lot of people obviously you being a major exception to this you you managed that transition exceptionally well and i'm wondering what that was what that was like if there were any uh, you know, why, why do you think you were able to make that transition effectively? And, you know, today does that coming from the pits give you edge?
0: You know, you know, one of the things about, about the trading pits is, um, that you do have this, uh, you know, it's ingrained in you that you need to be able to price anything at any time, you know, at a moment's notice and, uh, you know, if you can do it in your head, it's it's you have that much more of an edge, and and I think that that practice is actually still useful to this day. Um, uh, you know, when in March, when sulfur futures had a you know September sulfur futures had a hundred plus basis point range, uh, just kind of thinking about the volatility surface in that in that environment, and and having that kind of really intuitive grasp of what's going on, um. I, I, you know, I, I think that that gives you a, a perpetual advantage. Um, but, but so shortly after I started, they launched Globex, uh, which was an electronic trading system. And, um, you know, I, I had a pretty small operation at the time, but I was like, I definitely want to get a Globex machine. I definitely want to have a guy making markets overnight. Um, and because that's of course how this stuff should trade um and so i was you know i was excited about it when it first happened it was funny i still remember that the globex was something that was this the software and hardware was actually developed by reuters and um and cme licensed it and they handed out t-shirts on the first day that globex launched and and uh It said, um, CMA, CME by day on the front had a big sun and on the back of the shirt, it said glowbacks by night with a moon. I was like, you know, this is just an awesome lie. And, uh, obviously all designed to make the pit traders feel comfortable that they weren't, you know, their jobs weren't at risk. Um, and I thought it was pretty funny in 92, I moved to London and, uh, set up the the london operation and i stood in the bund option pit for the first year and then i was trading from upstairs for the second year but but that was right when urex fought really hard to get the bund futures to transition from life to urex and uh you know we had a a team trading the arb between urex and and life um we had our own broker in the pit in the bund futures pit And, you know, sometimes our broker would, like, go out for lunch and and have a pint and then come back and, like, be a little bit off. And I'm like, you know, this pit stuff is just ridiculous. I mean, the sooner this stuff transitions to a computer, the better. Um, And so then I moved back to Chicago in 94. And I said, you know, if this stuff, if the CME hasn't completely transitioned to the screen by the year 2000, this place is going to be out of business. And, and I just couldn't have been more wrong. Um, I, I couldn't have been more wrong about the timing. It took far longer than that. Um, I think these transitions always do, but, but suffice it to say, I was always, a uh, you know, a big believer that of course this stuff could be handled more efficiently electronically. Um, I, I, but I was definitely dead wrong about the timing.
2: It's interesting you bring that up. I mean, that probably meant you had more edge for longer, given that it, the transition took a bit longer than you might have expected. So definitely a, a boon in the beginning of DRW. But I, I guess a, a follow-up question to something you said. You said you have to be ready to price anything at any time. There's a price for anything. You know, classic pit trader mentality. Um, what was it like when a whole block of this new thing called bitcoin came up for auction sometime in 2013 or 14 and you had to think through pricing it and maybe starting starting a company around that how did, how did that work
0: yeah so so you, you know we had a number of people at DOW who were interested in bitcoin and and i started thinking about it and you know kind of read the paper and and um I, I was super intrigued by it. I mean this idea that you could transfer value in a trustless manner uh was very appealing to me. I mean the lack of intermediaries um uh it can be, you know, can dramatically reduce friction. Of course, I had a very dim view of intermediaries because over time I became the largest trader in the Eurodollar option pit and um there were often these trades that would come through the pit and you know we would take down a huge chunk of it and then 10 minutes later the block trade would go up from the board and it's like oh so some big bank just ripped off their customer and then came and back to back the 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 trade into the pit like that's not even trading that's just ridiculous and um and these, you know, intermediaries are not providing a ton of value in the in the system. I'm saying this in the nicest possible way. At the time, I wasn't saying it in such nice, such a nice way. Um, and uh, and so this idea of you know of a financial system that reduced the intermediaries in the in the system was just kind of naturally a very appealing thing to me. Um, and so. Uh, you know, so so we had all these debates about you know, well, well is this important? Um, what is it that's important about it? Is it you know, is it Bitcoin or is it blockchain? I mean, all that stuff that people eventually started having debates about. We were having debates about it in two thousand thirteen, and so we decided that we would do two things. We well, a few things. We you know, we started Cumberland um, to provide liquidity in in Bitcoin. Uh, we started a company called Digital Asset Holdings, which is based in New York, that was more focused on the blockchain applications. And then um, and we decided to buy some Bitcoin. And so, yes, you know, then, uh, you know, the the government auctions came up. And of course, a lot of those were uh, Silk Road coins that had been uh, seized. And, and, you know, at the time, there was this misperception. The misperception was, you know, any criminal is going to use this stuff to to do bad things, and of course, I, I mean, Bitcoin is. I, I guess the advantage for criminals is that they can, you know, uh, they don't have to, you know, go out and pick up a, a sack of uh, of hundred dollar bills or something. But but the the really bad thing for criminals is that every single transaction is memorialized forever. And um, so that just doesn't seem like a good, uh, a good, you know, uh, characteristic to have if you're going to try to do something illegal. Of course, Silk Road, you know, found out the hard way that that was, uh, in fact, a really dumb thing to do. Uh, but that's actually the reason that we named Cumberland Cumberland, because we figured, well, at the time everybody believes that this is only going to be uh, a place for, Criminals, so at least let's distance the brand a little bit from uh, from the core company. Um, yeah, and so then uh, you know the auctions started happening, and, and 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 to us it was just a matter of of kind of pricing, you know, understanding the liquidity in the market and pricing the auctions accordingly. When you first spun out Cumberland, actually I actually have a question where
1: where did where did the name come from, Cumberland?
0: <laughs> so uh, so one of my uh, longtime partners at DRW um Jeff loveoff was is uh you know former a, a lawyer in his former life and and so he often was involved in uh naming new companies um and Jeff is a big grateful dead fan and uh there's a you know a uh, a mining song about the uh you know about the Cumberland blues um and uh you know given the the you know the mining link in cryptocurrencies uh he decided to call it cumberland so
1: it's uh it's, it's a good 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 story there so and and i get i get why in the beginning you, you wanted to you 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 wanted you wanted to separate it out i mean but when you were first like spinning it out when you were first thinking about what it what it could be what were you envisioning cumberland Doing or providing in the space was it was it always going to be somebody that provided provided liquidity? Were you thinking of it more as a risk taking venture? You know what what was the what you know what was the thought process behind starting? Yeah,
0: so so it, the idea was just hey, there, you know, we we uh, at DOW we know how to trade, we know how to take risk, we know how to provide liquidity to the market, and so let's do the same thing in uh, in Bitcoin, and that was the. That was the genesis. Of course, with with Cumberland, um, you know, there was a, it was much more kind of a, a counterparty facing situation, um, but also you know trading on uh, you know providing liquidity in
2: other venues. So, I guess just a follow up question on that: um, you've obviously been through multiple crypto cycles now, um, and more broadly, you've been through cycles of market maturation, you know, you were talking about the urex, globex, uh things going to the screen. Is there a is there a recipe for cycle survival that you adhere to because you have managed to do to do this through so many different uh peaks and troughs of, you know, euphoria and de- despair not just in crypto but in in lots of different markets. What how do you how do you think about navigating these things?
0: You know, there there are two different cycles that you're talking about, one is kind of a market structure cycle and the other is uh, you know, uh, a hype cycle, I guess, um, bubbles. Uh, so, so, you know, the way that I think about it is, I just, uh, you know, think about risk management first and foremost. Um, uh, I think about, uh, um, you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, it really all comes down to. To basic risk management. Uh, by the way, I, I will say I think that I think that Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies in general, but especially Bitcoin, is really one of the hardest instruments to uh, to trade. Um, I, you know, and and the only thing that is clear is that when there's, um, I think of it as a negatively convex instrument in that when there's a lot of hype then that increases adoption and um, and that increases the probability that Bitcoin becomes viewed by a majority of the world population as a superior version of a store of value Um, and uh, on the other hand, when the price of Bitcoin declines, then people become less interested and the perceived probability that Bitcoin becomes a golden replacement declines. And so both of these things are kind of like, so when the price is going up, you know, uh, you can build a model that would argue that the fair value is higher than it is now. And, the, the, and conversely, when the price is going down. And, and so, it, you know, I think that it's actually unique um, in a, a financial instruments that have that characteristic. That's really interesting.
2: I mean, I guess in commodities, you kind of have the opposite. When, when the price goes up too much, people just demand less and then the price mean reverts. That's sort of my background. But I guess just a follow-up question. So a negatively convex asset, as you described it, like Bitcoin, that, you know, creates self-fulfilling rallies and, and sell-offs. What about that makes it harder to trade? Wh- wouldn't you be able to just implement a momentum strategy that, that follows the the trend uh, of which there would theoretically be large ones and you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe it's a momentum strategy, but but it has big troughs and valleys along the way, and and so you know, it's very easy to you know, if you don't have conviction, to to get washed out. You know, if your strategy is kind of a levered long and, oh, if it starts to go down, I'm going to get out, um, it's probably a money-losing proposition.
1: Are there any other markets that you've seen that trade similarly to this? Or what is or another way of saying is What is the most similar market you've seen, if any, to, to, to crypto?
0: I, I think it's really, it's a very different market. I guess that the closest thing, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, you see some, similar price patterns in um, in emerging technologies um, and you know this kind of, you know like the internet bubble and and um, that kind of thing. but but I would argue that those things are fundamentally different because still you're talking about the valuation of a company and um, you ultimately have to make certain assumptions about, the earnings of that company, and market share, and total addressable market, um, and in Bitcoin, it's you know it's not an earnings question; it's just a question of is this a superior store of value to gold, and uh, um, and that's really all a question of how many, how, what percentage of the world population feels that way. Yeah,
1: and it's and it's and it's very it's. It does. It does also seem to be that the answer to that question is is almost a little bit path dependent. It's like the more you know, the, the more the more people that adopt it in a, in a in a short in a shorter period of time leads to crazier momentum and crazier outperformance. Um, so, you know, it's like it, it, it's it's a pretty it's you know from from mine definitely a very very interesting interesting asset to trade. And you know, one one thing one thing that you said one thing that you said in there is uh, emerging emerging tech. Sometimes acts uh, like like crypto, and we've been hit with this recent wave of uh, of AI applications and and LLMs, and and they've at least even in the short term over the last six seven months since ChatGPT really went viral. There's been so much discussion about how it might impact our jobs as as, as people as people that deal with the financial markets and and you know a, a lot more than just that. And you as somebody that has navigated a lot of change when it comes to technology and how it impacts financial markets, how do you see
0: this recent development? Uh,
1: and, and are you are you keeping are you keeping your eyes
0: on it? Yeah, so right now I'm in Woodside, California. I'm 10 minutes from Stanford. Um, uh, I've you know met with a bunch of uh, AI people over the last few days. Um, and I've been coming here regularly and doing that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's, a it's, it is a consequential technology. Um, you know, the, the innovation that's taking place in, uh, you know, even specifically in LLMs is, is really very interesting. Um, and So I think it will have all sorts, I think it will have, I think it will impact pretty much everything, um, aside from, you know, somebody that's living off the grid in a cabin in the woods. So is this kind of a, um,
2: is this kind of one of those moments in, let's say financial history where an enterprising young person can go back to their studio apartment, uh, and use some new technology to print out some sheets and then come back to the pit the next day and, and. Uh, and when is is the llm sort of the the modern equivalent of that uh in that it will give the first group of traders who figure it out an edge and if so how do you think so
0: yeah so so it's entirely possible um uh but it's unclear i, I I'm convinced that llms are going to be uh really useful for thinking about some aspects of markets and risk taking um but it's it's pretty unclear um, exactly what those are, and and uh, how much human intervention you need in that process. So it's all it's all a, you know. It's a matter of I, I think it's like will be discovered very shortly, and then the technology will continue continue to evolve, and so the answer to those questions will almost certainly change.
2: It's it's kind of interesting to think about, like, hey, are we at this? Deep blue moment, where technology is about to beat human traders at you know, at their game, or are we more at the kind of CME going to screen moment, where it just uh, should have happened years ago and it, it still hasn't? Um, well, now it has, but maybe in 2000. So, I guess, are you? Are is it, it? Has AI thus far changed the way that you run your life, or your business, or your approach to markets, or are you just still in kind
0: of? Uh, information absorption
2: mode
0: yeah right now i'm in information absorption mode i wouldn't say that i've changed anything meaningful other than spending time on it please let me know when you do you know i think
1: one of the uh one of the one of the great quotes that you had i was i was reading reading some of uh some of the articles that you had been mentioned in before doing 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 the podcast and i found i found a really funny quote that i liked uh, which is that when the lme had their nickel incident you called it one of the most inept moves I've ever seen an exchange make and i thought that was uniquely funny for somebody that spent so much time in crypto you know because uh we've obviously had our fair our, our fair share of uh dealing uh deal, deal dealing with venues um and you know one one question i add is you you've seen the crypto market evolve in terms of liquidity uh o- over time and and i'm curious how how you've sort of how you viewed the last, you know, I guess eight years, nine years since you've been in crypto and how it's, how it's evolved and where you think it's going to go in the next five years.
0: Yeah. Um, here, you know, obviously there's a lot less, um, at, at least from outside the crypto community, there's a lot less excitement about it than there was, you know, maybe pre FTX blowing up. Um, but, I still think that there's a uh, really important innovation that's taking place in the space. Um, you know, I think that the ability to move, um, to move value instantaneously and, uh, um, you, you know, and, and if you want trustlessly is a really important innovation. I think that, um, applying, leveraging that technology for traditional financial markets is one of the most uh, exciting and impactful ways that um, that this technology is going to be used and so I'm super excited to to see that unfold which it will yeah Do, do you think on in, in the
1: terms of in terms of uh, the way that we interact with the uh, with the markets so right now obviously in the traditional world, use there's a separation between where liquidity lives where you custody that asset uh you know who who can who can who can provide leverage is it the exchange that provides leverage is it the brokers that provide right there's uh, it primes that provide leverage do you think that system is where crypto will eventually go to like do you think that's the end point of financial markets or do you think that crypto is going to show us a different a different way that financial markets could operate I'm, I'm curious your take on on that
0: yeah so so it's i think it's um let's see so so first of all you know in the centralized crypto exchange space you know these exchanges decide that they should do everything you know they should be the fcm they should be the dcm the dco um, and then in addition to that they should provide leverage um and and of course, you know, as I was watching this unfed, I said, you know, this is inherently less stable. Um, one of the nice things about traditional financial markets is that by breaking up these different, uh, you know, these different responsibilities, you get more transparency and you get more safety and resilience. Um, now, obviously, when you switch over to the DeFi world, it it does enable you to open up those different responsibilities to different market participants in an even more granular way than you can do in traditional finance and it also opens up the ability to uh, provide short-term loans to do um, you know to uh, move money instantaneously it's it's one of the things that you know the LME decided to, um, to not ask for margin because, uh, it was going to blow up, um, some of the large nickel producers. And then of course they decided to cancel all the trades one day, uh, because, you know, they were worried that a bunch of mem you know, clearing members and customers would default. And so that's one way of running things. Um, the other way of running things is just to say, "Hey, we're going to move value in real time. When there's a margin deficit, you know, you top it up right now. And of course, you have the ability to do that because you can move money on chain. And my belief is that that actually leads us to a more transparent, more safe, more resilient uh, market, financial market. And and that is the promise of of a lot of this technology that will in fact enable that
2: to happen so what types of time frames if you had to make a sort of a prediction would you say we're looking at when it comes to um the blockchainification of certain assets perhaps nickel um things that right now aren't necessarily associated with crypto
0: Yeah. So, so I'm perpetually wrong in estimates like that. So I always think they're going to happen sooner than they will. So whatever I say, just take the over. Um, uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is, of course, there are some assets that are, um, that are physical assets and, you know, like nickel. So, you know, yeah, you can put nickel on a blockchain, but ultimately the nickel has to sit somewhere. And if, you know, somebody steals the nickel, then you know, you have a blockchain that represents nickel, and the nickel's not there, and that's a problem, right? So, so that kind of stuff is something that still has this uh, intimate link to the physical world that is super critical. Um, now, there are other instruments that are already virtual instruments, like you know equities and and treasuries, and um, you know people don't usually walk around with their chair certificates, and and I think that those. Uh, assets probably lend themselves more to um, to digitization, to blockchainization, um, and so so I think that that stuff is going to happen. I mean, you know, like right now we're experimenting with intraday repo um, using blockchain technology. So that's on top of uh, Canton. Uh, which is the digital asset holdings uh, blockchain and um, uh, you know so and, and that's kind of, kind of powered by by Broadridge. Um, so that's an example of um, of experimenting with you know, the kind of the early days of using this technology to do that. And ultimately, of course, what that does is it enables, uh value to be moved in real time and even 24 7 and that's the kind of thing that does will make clearing houses more resilient if they want to avail them, themselves of that of that uh technology interesting so
2: i guess just a quick follow-up question if you could tell the listeners a bit more about digital asset holdings the canton blockchain and what sort of problems it solves that perhaps ethereum dozen, I think it'd be really useful for everyone to learn about.
0: Yeah. So so uh you know Ethereum is obviously a, a very powerful network, um, you know, tons of, of energy and participation. One of the drawbacks of Ethereum is that every single transaction is is public. Um and of course, you know, for most people, if they buy or sell a security, they don't want the whole world to know that they bought or sold that security. Um, you know, probably fine, depending on the market structure for their counterparty to know, uh, maybe for a regulator to know, maybe for a, a clearinghouse to know, maybe for a prime broker to know. But um, you know, for for any given instrument and any given transaction, the um, you want to be able to really control who could who can see that, um, and so the advantage of Canton and then the smart contract language on top of it, which is called Daml, um, is that it has uh, configurable privacy, which was built, you know, at the core of this, uh, of this chain. Um, and this is something that, the the team's been working on since 2014. So this is a very long, very long, uh, process to, um, you know, to build a blockchain that works with those characteristics,
1: I think it would be helpful to expand on what what is the current what what is the issue with the current stack that doesn't allow this to happen, right? With the current with the current architecture, why why can't we why can't we achieve this?
0: Uh, so in in currently in traditional financial markets,
1: yeah, yeah, it's you know it's uh, you know. W- why why is that why is what Canton you know enables not not necessarily possible I mean I think you know for for us here we're, we're participants in the in the financial markets we understand the value that blockchain can bring can bring to the table uh, but I think it'd be useful for you know people that are less familiar to to sort of understand you know what what the current what the, you know a lot, a lot of the current issues
0: yeah so right now if you want to um wire money um you know that can take it can take hours. And of course you can only do it when the wire windows open um and so you know let's say that you have on a um you know a spread between a futures contract that's in london and a futures contract that's in the united states and then after london hours there's a big you know a big rally um and you're you know long the long the futures in london and you're short the futures in the us um you know the idea that you could pull variation margin out of the London market and move it over to satisfy the negative variation that you're experiencing in the U.S. I, I mean, like you're not even close. Um, uh, you know, w- actually, what will happen is the next day that futures contract will rally. You know, assuming then the next day we open up and the market's unchanged, you know, then the London futures contract will rally. The variation margin will show up in your account. At that point, you know you can wire it out. Maybe that day, maybe the next day. Um, you know, maybe now you're running into the weekend, and so uh, the whole system is just very um, clunky. It's it's a lot of it is batch. Um, so you you know you have these uh, cycles that kind of process like once a day or twice a day, um, and um, and and so it just. Makes everything very slow to move around. It means that you need to have a lot of extra capital in the system in order to deal with um, that lack of, um, you know, with all those delays that take place.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's that that, that that's very helpful helpful framing uh, for people. You know, it's it's just it's something that we're we're honestly blessed with as people that are in that are in crypto. Uh, you know, we we use a system that is accessible 24 seven. And, uh, you know, every time I go back to the, uh, you know, quote unquote traditional markets, I'm, I'm always, I feel, I always leave feeling a little bit disappointed with what, with what I can do. Uh, you know, what is, what is possible and, and, and what isn't. And then I, I, I flee back into my MetaMask and, uh, and end up, and end up much happier. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it's good. It's good to hear these, these, these problems, these problems are being tackled and, you know, it's something that uh, we, 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 we look out as well. Um, you know, we, I, I, had one last, one last question for, for you, Don, you know, I think when, when people think of, uh, you know, when people think of the Chicago, Chicago trading firms, a lot of people think of, you know, high frequency taking, taking bips, uh, here, here and there, a lot of it's, a lot of it's arbitrage. And I think a lot of your career has been, has been characterized by finding these types of arbitrage opportunities, but you also, you, you've, you've also, you also take, take risk. Uh, you know, uh, and and so I'm, love to hear about your process, as uh, I think our listeners would love to hear too about you, you your process for decision making, uh, when it comes when it when it comes to risk taking, and you know what what you think has helped you the most in your in in your career when it comes to be
0: being right. Yeah, so so you know, obviously the little arbitrages are great, um, uh, because you can generate these very high, sharp, high return trades. But the reality is they don't persist. Uh, markets constantly become more efficient and and those things quickly get arbed out. And so building a business that just relies on capturing those little arbitrages is, you know, it's not sustainable. Um, and so, uh, you know, being comfortable moving out the risk curve is is super important. Now, obviously, if you can move out the risk curve and you have access to super low latency, uh, tools and connectivity, then you're in a really strong spot, and that's where we try to be. Um, but when I think about risk, so when when I think about markets or really most things in the world, um, I I see a series of probability distributions, um, and um, and and so it's. It's when, if you look at the world as a series of probability distributions, then you're kind of well set up to think about, about risk. And, um, and so anytime that there's some kind of a perceived dislocation in the market, um, because when there's a dislocation in the market, when there's a violent move, you know that there's a high probability that it's mispriced. Either it was mispriced before or it's mispriced now. Um, or, I mean, okay, probably there's some fundamental thing that changed, but high probability that it's still mispriced because, um, you know, new information has come out and there's been a dramatic move. And um, so so the way I think about it is is I, I um, think about what are the drivers of this Price action what are the drivers of supply and demand um if it's a commodity or what are the drivers of the fed's reaction function and then on top of that the supply and demand for for kind of the hedging need of this part of the interest rate curve and um and then i try to think about you know what are the things that could change going forward that will um shift the fed's reaction function one way or another um uh, you know, what is um, what will cause the Fed to ease, right? After Silicon Valley Bank, uh, the interest rate market priced in a, kind of an ex- expectation that the Fed was going to ease by 100 basis points by the end of the year. Um, and of course, you know, that's not what happened. I mean, so far the Fed has hiked 50 basis points since then. And I expect the Fed you know, may well hike again before the end of the year. I expect the Fed won't ease by the end of the year. But, and of course, you know, those outcomes were all within the probability distribution. But my view at the time was that that uh, the probability of the Fed easing by the end of the year was massively over overpriced, that part of the distribution. And the part about, you know, the part of the distribution of the Fed continues to hike was significantly underpriced. And and, um, so, you know, I start with that and then think about, okay, what's the best way of expressing that risk?
1: That, that, that makes, that makes a, a, a ton of sense. I, I always, I, I try, I, I always try to think similarly. I think one of the hardest parts is constructing that probability distribution is thinking about, okay, well, what, what are the criteria that actually go into building this out? It's like, okay, I think this is a 60% chance of, you know, th- this and then 30 and then, but then uh, it turns out that you were just completely wrong.
0: No, I mean, I mean, coming up with your own subjective measures of the probability distribution is super hard, um, and and especially when the market's saying something very different.
1: Yep. As a closing closing question here, are there any uh, trades that you you know you really really loved that? you can talk about here maybe maybe your favorite trade ever if you're if you're willing, if you're willing to disclose it that you can think back on and say hey i I, I really really loved putting this one on and the, the, you know, I don't know if it made you the most money or was the most interesting.
0: yeah, I mean I mean here I you know i I've done lots of lots of trades that I really loved um uh, i I mean this year i I will say that the dislocation, what I perceived as a complete dislocation in the interest rate market after Silicon Valley Bank was, was one of my favorite trades. Um, uh, I thought that that, that that was such, there was such a gap between my perception of the, uh, you know, what the probability distribution should be and the markets implied probability distribution. Um, I thought that was just phenomenal. Um, but, you know, going back in time, um, one of the trades that, uh, and this is a different type of trade, but but, um, you know, in 2008, when Lehman went bankrupt, we were one of a handful of firms that the CME called to ask to price the, their portfolio. And, um, uh, you know, we were well prepared for it, you know, got the whole portfolio from the, from the CME, broke it down into different chunks of risk, had different teams price the risk you know, added it up and then submitted the aggregate bid. It was actually by product, but, but, uh, you know, we ended up being the best bid in something like three of the five, uh, buckets of, uh, in the auction. And, um, and there's something, you know, and then when we did win those buckets, we were super efficient about, you know, hedging off that risk, um, in, you know, in kind of the the optimal way, and you know, all of that that entire process obviously took um, a lot of confidence in um, in how we were thinking about the risk and and how we were modeling the risk and that ability to then aggregate it up and and in a very volatile environment, say, and you know, here's our number. That's, a, so, that's
1: an awesome story, part of history, right there. It's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I was I was part of the Lehman portfolio, but I didn't get acquired. What happened there? I had to go find a find a different job after that. I I had a, a follow up question for you, Don. Um, does your you know another auction? Does your Bitcoin trade factor into maybe the top five trades, or did, did that feel like a uh, more of a venture thing than a trade? Uh, I I'm sorry, which one? The the Bitcoin trade, the Silk Road oh. auction
0: you know i mean so that was a series of auctions and and they were really in, in relatively small uh in in terms of risk um i mean they were interesting right I, you know the first one we'd never kind of interacted with the united states marshals um and um but but yeah i mean i thought it was a fairly vanilla process i thought they did a good job thinking about how to you know how to uh maximize the value and and we were very comfortable trading the asset class so it it, it was great
2: well don thank you so much don't don't want to take up too much more of your time have to get back to uh oh oh i guess we lost Don. he's just he's just <laughs> you say we don't want to take up too much more of your time it's very valuable
1: jonah this so guy. really enjoyed this conversation uh i i really you know i think i think uh, i think i learned a lot I uh, came away thinking about it. If I, although if I had to say one thing that I, I'd I'd really like to dive into more is I need to figure out how he constructs those probability distributions.
2: Me too. I was like, what uh, what what goes into that? But you know, I, I've tried a few times. Uh, he he's the master at it. More more just trying to learn. Match so yeah. that up. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation. Really looking forward to you know the next episode. Avi, as always, absolute pleasure to co-host this with you. And um, again, none of this is financial advice.